Hello, and welcome to another episode of Flaming Pinto's production of Play Me Tape, a show where we delve song by song into the music that means something. I'm joined by my good pal, Darren. Bonjour, monsieur. And <laughs> my name is Jake. All right, cool. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I can't complain. Good. I wouldn't except listen to, anyway. Except about my haircut. <laughs> oh, how's that going? Have you, had to, have you had to leave the house without a hat on? I tried to fix it. You did not. I did. I did why? try to fix it. Why? Why? Did you get a flow bee? No. I did not fix it, I should point out. You ruined it. Well, I just changed how it was ruined. <laughs> so I don't think it's worse than it was, but it's also not better. So uh, It'll grow back. Well, yeah, that's what hats are for. And it's, it's winter. Like, yeah, plus I'm wearing a mask, so even if someone does see me hatless, they can't identify me later. <laughs> Except by my haircut. <laughs> if you see somebody out, some dude walks by, do you even notice? Because I don't. I honestly don't care. Unless you it's just, like... You blitz past people because you're focused it, on your own stuff all the time? It's not that. I just don't pay any attention to what other people are wearing or, or their hair. I pay far more attention to what they drive than to anything else. But do you pick people out and go, oh, dude, look at the hair on that guy? Oh, I come from real people watchers, so yeah. So I, that's uh, why you're kind of I worried was... about your hair? I was really heavily trained by uh, my mother and my sister to <laughs> to spot <laughs> bad hair. They were real people watchers, and they would spot something, and they would see something that they did not care for, and there would be the subtle elbow nudge, and then the the chin nod. Ouch! And so I'd look over, and I'd always be like, "What?" And they, <laughs> shut oh boy, up, shut up, shut up! We're laughing at that girl over there who's wearing cowboy boots with a skirt. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with cowboy boots and a skirt? I love well, that. I book. don't know. I don't know. They thought it was bad news. I guess I don't know. And then my dad, who was a lifelong man of hair, lack, follically challenged. He was a guy that lost his hair in his youth in university, as a matter of fact. And he went to see when he when he realized what was going down. He went to a doctor, and he thought, "Well, I'll ask. Maybe there's something." There was no internet then. Yeah. So when it came to medical questions, who did you ask? Well, you made an appointment and you spoke to a physical doctor in person. And so he's sitting in a waiting room, possibly at a walk-in clinic, if those existed at the time. I don't know. And in walked a bald doctor. So he thought, well, all right. I, yeah. <laughs> this is what it's going to be. Yeah. And so he didn't do anything about it. It just happened. But he became very, very cognizant of people around him that took pains to cover their condition losing your hair in public can be an awful awful experience and uh, the people that never ever you know that have those thick full heads of hair will never maybe understand this but it can just be a trying experience to go through we come from a generation where the toupee was fairly regularly used and the comb over was a fairly regular thing. Oh yeah. And generationally that's changed somewhat so that guys just shave their heads and that's an okay look and no one has an issue with that. And life goes on for the most part. It's still not a, a place where you want to be. I don't think anyone looks forward to losing their hair. No, it certainly is a better place and time to live. If that's the fate in front of you. 
partially, I think we can thank Patrick Stewart for that. Oh, maybe. Good call. Because he was, in the early days of Star Trek The Next Generation, he took a lot of abuse over that, but then turned it completely around and was, I think, named one of people's sexiest people, or he was... Whether he was named the world's sexiest man or not, he was sort of in that issue where they talk about the sexiest people, the also-rans. That's the thing. I think there's certain people that wear it well. And yeah, I honestly, sure. I, I think your father's one of them. Yeah. You know, I well, think your, your dad is a, is a handsome guy and he pulls it off extremely well. Yeah. I can't even imagine seeing the man with hair. I think right. it would look odd. Too ingrained for us. Yeah. You know, the really interesting thing was, and not to get a, too far off into the nerd weeds here, but, you know, when Patrick Stewart first started on that show, when that show was announced and you saw those early press photos of the cast, people went nuts. And it's an easy joke, so a lot of people made it because at our core, we're really not, there, really not yeah. very creative. The tagline of Star Trek was to boldly go, to go boldly, whatever. And so in all the articles, people joked about to baldly go. Yeah. So it was pretty hacky, but it was a joke that you saw over and over again. And in an interview, Gene Roddenberry, the uh, creator and godfather of all things Star Trek, he was asked, why did you choose this guy? And why, why would he be bald in the future? Couldn't you cure baldness by the <laughs> 20, 24th century or whenever? the timeline takes place and his his response which i thought was so brilliant was dude in the 24th century no one will care yes who's gonna give a crap one of the great things about star trek of the past and unfortunately i, I don't get this from the newer star trek that's out one of the great elements of star trek and one of the reasons why it probably drew me in as much as it did was optimism there was something really amazing about this portrait of the future in which we dealt with all our stupid human garbage we'd put it behind us yeah. and we were united and we were going off into the galaxy into the universe at large and positively searching and looking and exploring finding out what was out there and it was this immensely positive optimistic view of the future and i really love that and so much science fiction is not that there's so much science fiction that's gritty and <laughs> pessimistic look at a franchise that was really really big planet of the apes whoo that's a downer of a franchise yeah. and i love a lot of that stuff i love blade runner and it does not get more gritty and <laughs> you no know pessimistic, pessimistic than blade runner but i i happen to love it the contrast was there with star trek i always thought well that, that's a really enjoyable and optimistic take and you don't have to get bogged down in whether it's racial politics or whether it's environmental concerns or whatever it is this comes at you from a future where we're just going to go through pure exploration or we're going to write an interesting story that doesn't get bogged down in that because we're so far beyond that we've grown out of our adolescence as as a species we've grown out of our adolescence and this is this optimistic future as a lifelong pessimist no wonder it didn't ring true for me <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, I wasn't necessarily a fan, but I did like Next Generation. But I mean, sure. what a wonderful view of the world. Yeah, that actually segues nicely into something I really wanted to speak to at the front of this episode. This is episode 10, right? Yep. Yeah, yay, double digits. So we're not going to get another digit added until 100. So <laughs> this is a landmark episode. 
made another digit. Woo! We touched on in episode one the origin of the name Play Me Tape. And just kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit because I think it's a really important reason we have for discussing what we're discussing. And I think in retrospect, it makes a lot more sense than it did in the era from which it came. But as you pointed out in episode one, this relates to an anecdote from my personal experience. And we used to go on these bus trips. It was for hockey practice, but hockey practice was 45 minutes an hour away in the, this town called Milton Keynes. It's a tiny, well, 50,000 people town Ooh. that you've probably never heard of. It was yep. one of these newly created towns. It was the town of the future, Milton Keynes. And just so happened that this was the closest ice surface that was available. <laughs> yeah, well, no surprise. I'm surprised there was one even that close to you. Yeah. So we'd get on this bus and we'd drive 45 minutes or an hour through the night to play however long a hockey practice we could squeeze out and then head back. And one of these guys was a Cambridge University student and he was a super nice guy, a super energetic and optimistic, friendly, gregarious little guy. But he was also odd. He was, you know, that classic... English scatterbrained genius. He apparently was a researcher on environmental science and was involved in some discovery or some expanding of our existing knowledge on the ozone layer and its, its condition at that time. <laughs> the really? hole in the ozone layer. Yeah. He was apparently just a next level sort of a genius of a dude. But you spoke to him and he was just the most unassuming, bubbly little dude. And he was just a pleasure to be around but he had sort of that funny manic energy about him and he like we said had these cassettes that he mixed himself he'd have this assortment of songs that he would put on his cassettes his his whatever his name was i wish i could remember his name he was a good dude but he would put all of his favorite songs or all the songs that he was listening to onto the onto a mixtape as you did back then because that was your only option and he was so fastidious a person that every cassette, every blank tape that you bought came with a, an insert card that you would put in the case so that you knew you could write if you felt like it. Most people I knew never did this, but you could write the tracks that you would put on your own tape so that you could keep tape A separate and distinct from tape B and you knew which you were pulling out. As with any album, you want to know what the songs are on the track listing. And so he was so fastidious about it that not only would he write the individual songs that he had picked onto this tape insert, but he would feed it into a typewriter. That's incredible. Type the individual songs. And that's not an easy thing to do. That must just no. be just trial and error. <laughs> and like, and, so he, he had like a typewriter in his room at school and well, he was doing it there. It was 1991. <laughs> I'm, I just, it just blows me away that he yeah, spent this was, much time doing this. It was, it was 1991. It's a lot I, I of knew... effort for a mixtape. I knew the, the school I went to, I knew a couple of people that had laptops and one of the, they were black and white. Oh yeah. So wow. this is the arrow we're talking about. This, yeah. this is pre-internet. This is laptops were a $4,000 convenience Holy. and they were, they were not yet color. <laughs> and I remembered a couple of people that had laptops and I was just so blown away. And the build quality wasn't ideal. I remember hanging out in a girl's room. Oh, really? Someone, no, no, no. It was a group of us. And someone had food. And she was like, hey, 
you know, can I have a piece of your toast or whatever? And they tossed a piece of toast to her. Uh-oh. And she missed, and it bounced off the space bar, and it permanently ruined the space bar on You're... its fourth. A piece I mean, of it, toast. It was a piece of toast hit the space bar. Now, it was usable, but it was just, it was no longer ever straight or correct looking. Wow. <laughs> hey, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> Um, but that was just the air. So he would, he would do this by hand. And there was a guy on the bus. He was an American student. And he looked at this guy when he realized that this was hand typed and he just stared at him for the longest time. And he, he balled his, his hand up in a a tight, tight fist. And then he took his other hand and he wrapped his (laughs) other hand around that fist so that, you know, you're looking at, you know, the concentric (laughs) circles of his fingers wrapped around his fingers. And he just, he held this up to the guy and he's like, this is, this is what your ass must be like. You, you just must be so anal that the, it just like, you know, I mean, it was the, the Ferris Bueller line of yes. crushing coal to diamonds. And he was kind of making fun of him for being so anally retentive. And the whole point was that he would at least once per bus ride, go bombing up to the front of the bus with one of these tapes in hand. And he would exclaim to the bus driver, play me tape, play me tape. You've got to play me tape. Uh, I'm doing a horrible impression of him. It, I, I don't even remember what he sounded like because we've we've used that line so many times over the years that it's it's quite literally in my memory, retroactively changed how I think he even <laughs> sounded. I doubt his accent was even remotely close to that. But for years, we kind of scoffed at that. And we kind of scoffed at it in much the way the other American student kind of scoffed at his anal retentiveness. Yeah. I'm not super happy about that. I mean, it's funny and it's a, it's a funny memory that we have, but at the same time, I really look back and think what a great title for our show because it's everything that we want the show to be. It's this guy super excited to be able to share the music on his tape with a busload of people that he seems to like and get along with. Like he, he just seemed like one of those people that would, (laughs) with that crazy manic energy that he would get along with anyone in any situation you dumped him in. He managed, he managed and found a way to get along. And there he was super excited to share all these songs that he thought were good enough to put on these mixtapes and then type out. And I really like that as an idea for the, the show's title, because I, rather than looking at it ironically or sarcastically as we have in the past, I'm really looking at it now as straight faced as I can, because I, I really, like the energy that he, he had. I really, yeah. I, I kind of admire it and I'm kind of envy it. In the nineties were such a cynical time. <laughs> it was such an apathetic time. And there was just dismissiveness of effort. Yeah. So <laughs> passion. True. There was the thing in 21 jump street, the reboot with Channing Tatum and over and over again, Channing Tatum just drills into Jonah Hill's character. Whatever it is that you're doing, do it but don't try (laughs) effort should be zero or it should at least look like it's zero trying trying sucks and if you're seen to try that's bad and that was our experience growing up that was the apathy of the 80s he couldn't believe that people wanted to use both straps of their backpacks in a school setting because of how lame that seemed (laughs) because apathy and low effort that that was the prestige right the guy that looked like he wasn't trying in the slightest that was the coolest guy in the room the guy that looked like he didn't care in the slightest that was the coolest guy in the room well 
here we are and we're listening to these songs. I, I really care about these songs. Yeah. I really care about these songs. And I want to, I want to share these songs with you personally. And in so doing, you know, with anyone that might happen to be listening at the same time. Yeah. It's amazing that you made that connection with that, that here's this kid and all he wants to do is share what he loves. I mean, I feel that way about a few things in life. And the problem is, Sometimes you do that and then somebody makes you feel like a fool. Yeah. And so you're not exactly feeling like I'm going to, I'm not doing that again. Yeah. Because you feel like a bonehead for that. And that's kind of what we don't want to do here is have that smugness and dismiss certain types of music, genres of music, whatever. Especially full genres of music. Yeah. I've got some ideas for country music. There's great stuff wherever you go. Yeah. To quote corner shop, good shit's all around, good people. Like it's everywhere. Like it's in every genre. There's something of value there. There's a reason it's a genre. There's a reason it exists. It's because something has been made and someone else has heard it and said, I like what I've heard. Yeah. For so long, it was so accepted for us to just go, what a bunch of garbage. (laughs) That's stupid. <laughs> Who'd listen to that crap? I'm stupid. completely guilty of doing that with country music for years. Yeah. And then as my kids grew up, my daughter took to country music and started really, really loving it. Like really yeah. loving it. Yeah. And going to festivals and playing stuff for me and me realizing. There is I, something of value. I think I actually kind of like this. Yeah. And for a long time, I wouldn't even admit it to her because for so long, I was like, no, get that crap away from me. Yeah. But it was totally wrong of me to do that. And now when we drive together somewhere, I will say to her, hey, can you play that song you used to play for me? And I love it. It is a great concept to be taken out of that name of Play Me Tate. And like you said, we made fun of that kid. I never even met the kid and I made fun of him (laughs) for for many many years i agree so here we are and we've made a few episodes and we're coming off the previous jake pick and the previous jake pick was a real crusher (laughs) of a song and it involved space tragic narrative story and my next episode was going to be an episode about another space tragedy (laughs) (laughs) it really was and uh, that song which i love might be on the playlist for the future but i thought i'd go in a different direction and i thought i'd go in a different direction for a very specific reason which i'll get to but in one of the early episodes i think it was the the decatur episode you had sort of (laughs) thrown your hands up and you're kind of exasperated and you're like dude Sometimes, I don't know. I don't know if I feel smart enough to to be listening to this song because I don't know what the heck he's talking about. And I thought that that was a... I'm sure you were being self-deprecating and you were just joking mostly, but I thought that was such an unfortunate thing because I certainly never, ever meant for that to be the case. I, you know, I'm, I'm playing the songs that I'm playing, not because I think that they make me sound smart when I play them. No, and I believe I'm playing me, I know songs. That. Well, there's a reason I bring this up. Someone texted me and sort of echoed what you said. I totally get what Darren says said when he said that. In a way, I was kind of horrified because I thought, oh my God, my intent isn't to come in with snobby choices or with difficult listening choices. I mean, I, I've got some ideas for songs that are difficult. I'll, t- 
<laughs> say that right <laughs> off the bat, but maybe for different reasons. But, you know, the reason I picked Decatur and the reason I picked uh, the song by Queen and the, the reason I picked any of the other songs that I've picked wasn't because I thought that they were better songs than any other given song choices, but just because I loved them. I happened to love them when I first heard them or I happened to come to love them at some point in my travels through, you know, life and so on and so forth. But ultimately, it's just about choosing the songs that we really, really care about. And whatever the source is, that's what the source is. It has nothing to do with any kind of music snobbery, I hope. And it, it also isn't an expression that there's some stuff we like and some stuff that we don't or that some stuff that we look down on. And before we go any further, I just want to say, like what you like. You know, no one really should ever feel, if they're listening to us, like we're in any way experts or that we're in any way more learned on this subject. We're finding new stuff out all the time. And we are both learning this stuff as we go. We're just guys that feel ways about music. And we want to talk about the ways that music makes us feel. And that's it. There's no more to it than that. There's 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 no more authority on that that we have over anybody else. Yeah, Full I'm stop. certainly no expert on music. <laughs> uh, I just, comparing the two of us, you're far more well-read when it comes to music you always have been i well, just well like i said i've i've had the benefit of spending years as a glum single loner and that <laughs> really it. frees up your schedule <laughs> for other interests it's as simple as that and that's not a joke but it's also your passion to read about that and basically your hobby no is it fair to say that music has been your hobby in the sense that my hobby is fixing up and racing cars your main hobby has essentially been music is that fair <sighs> Is it fair? Maybe. I think my hobby is more storytelling in a broader sense. Humans are weird, and I don't understand us. But I know there are certain things about the human experience that, are, that seem like they're hardwired. And there's something about our need to have and to tell stories that's primal. And I don't get it in the slightest. But there it is. So whatever it happens to be, however people are choosing to tell stories, I mean, I'm on board. Yeah. And I want to know more. And music certainly is a format. Let's not forget, like, the original concept for this, <laughs> for this podcast was we were going to talk about movies because you have a unique sensibility around you where you can watch a movie. And you know Cars so well that Cars are something that immediately stand out to you. So our original concept for this show was that we were going to watch car movies and discuss them. And... We simply needed something to talk about for a test episode. Yeah. And we had so much fun picking songs and talking about songs that it stuck. And that, that's where we are. But, I mean, ultimately, this was originally going to be a movie podcast, which seems wild looking back now. And it might still be. We might still launch a, another podcast with that as the premise. But for right now, I mean, we're thrilled and excited and having way too much fun talking about songs yeah to switch gears at the moment anyway having said all that why don't we get to the song the song is called genius of love the band is called the tom tom club i thought that this was maybe not so obscure a choice because it's one that i had heard around many many times but you weren't maybe as familiar with the song i recognized it i didn't know why and okay. we'll discuss later why. The whys and the wherefores. Yeah. 
but it's a great song. Let's give it a listen. Yep.
So that was Genius of Love by Tom Tom Club. Am I saying, saying that correctly? Yeah, Tom Tom. Uh, I think when you, like you had said, you had originally brought me that song thinking that I had possibly heard it. And it's so funny because I was listening to it. I'm wondering, I know this song. Yeah. But then I started to realize that I really didn't know the song as I was listening to it. And I can't say that I hadn't heard it before, but it wasn't, that wasn't it. And we had a yeah. discussion about how do I know this song? And it's a, it's an f- amazing song. Yeah. And musically and even lyrically, it's a, it's a super cool song that the one thing that stuck out for me was I'm talking about Smokey Robinson uh, and Bob Marley. I knew it because it was a, a song that was sampled for a Mariah Carey song. Yeah, the Mariah Carey song Fantasy. Yeah. So 1995. Yeah. So I went and listened to that song again that I hadn't heard in many, many years. And I like that song too. Yeah. You know, we talked about deep songs and why we're picking songs that we are. Clearly, this song is more fun. It's more danceable. It's something you may hear in a club. I'm so curious as to how you found this and why it means something to you. So this is a song... I, probably its biggest bump was that Mariah Carey hit. But it was a moderate, at least a moderate hit. I think it was a reasonable club hit, but it was also 1981. And you and I, maybe not strong in the club scene in 1981. <laughs> maybe. Due, due to our youth. <laughs> but this turns out is, is one of the most sampled tracks of the 1980s. It was used by Grandmaster Flash. It was used by, oh God, a, like there's a, Public Enemy song that used it, a Red Man song that used it, Buster Rhymes, I think, used it, PM Don used it, 50 Cent, 50, 50 Cent used it. No kidding. Yeah, Dream Warriors, to use a, a Canadian example. There was a lot. There's a very specific reason that I picked this, and it is the fact that it was such an upbeat song. And the reason I like the song has nothing to do with the lyricism. It has nothing to do with the the implied or the overt meaning behind the song. It's not a tragedy that calls out to something in the back of my, you know, it's kind <laughs> of my, my psyche. Nice. It's, it's a song that I just love because of the way it makes me feel when I hear it. And there is no more and no less than that. I do not have an amusing anecdote about this song. There's nothing. I don't have a backstory with this song. I don't have a first time I heard it, you know, something funny happened or whatever. I picked the song because of what it is and because of the way it makes me feel. I think the first time I heard the song, I saw the video on Much Music and I thought, that what a great song. That's it. That's the whole story. Wait, there was a, there's a video for... There is a video You're for the song and it's amazing because it's hand-drawn animation and it looks like it's done by middle schoolers. It is incredible and I recommend you going and watching the video it's on youtube and it's pretty amazing there's this whole thing our good friend james former roommate james used to have this whole philosophy about there was no or there should be no distinction between high art and low art you know you get <laughs> sort of those upper tier upper echelon very snooty very experimental less accessible artistic endeavors and then you get the more populist stuff in the lower tier and the one is always regarded as more important and more valuable than the other and james said no 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 art is art and 
categorizing things in a tier system is what you do for a sport. Yeah. <laughs> you don't do that for art. And at the time, I wanted to sound deep, so I would always agree with him. Yeah, it sounds really, really great to me, James. And pretended I knew what I was talking about because I, I really wanted that to be true, but I didn't know that it was, you know, in my heart of hearts. Yeah. Because it always seemed like there was such a clear divide between, well, that's television and it's pop culture and pop culture is garbage and you can ignore it. But this is David Lynch or this is Picasso or this is whatever. And it is inaccessible and it's more difficult and it's more profound and there are more layers going on. And the older I get, the more I think that James was very much correct. When one of the great unfinished albums of all times is a Beach Boys album called Smile. Have we talked about Smile? I'm sure we have. So Smile was this really incredible lost album. And it was lost because Brian Wilson went batshit crazy while trying to finish it. And it was a nuclear arms race between the Beach Boys and the Beatles. And the Beach Boys hit with pet sounds and really blew away the, well, the UK press, at least the American press didn't think of it, but they really hit a... Such a good album. A chord. Yeah, such a great album. And the Beatles hit back with, I think, Rubber Soul. And that just lit a fire under Ben Wilson. And he wanted to come back over the top with something that was just so mind-blowing that it would just knock Rubber Soul right out of the water. And it was this friendly rivalry. I don't believe that there was any animosity at all. I think they were really, really feeding on each other and, and making these steps forward and before he could finish smile which he was just spending gobs and gobs of time on in fact i think paul mccartney came in and did something for smile i think he chewed celery on on the mic for <laughs> the song vegetables i think he came in and, and did that so again there was no animosity between the bands but supposedly as the legend goes they dropped sergeant peppers oh. and it just took all the wind out of brian wilson's yeah. sails and he just sat there and said well I can't compete with that. And then Smile went unfinished, and then he spent a year in bed, and you know the rest is history. Yeah. Well, in the 2000s, the touring band that he had assembled, he assembled a, a band that toured with him and he recorded with him. And they had toured the album Pet Sounds, and some of the band members came to him. And they said, why don't we finish Smile? You never did that. And so I guess they coerced him to finishing Smile, and they brought Smile to completion. They went to Van Dyke Parks, who was the lyricist on the original album, and they got him to finish the lyrics that were unfinished, and they got Brian and the band collaborating and finishing the album. And the album dropped. And if you look at it now, if you go to the Wikipedia page for Brian Wilson's Smile, the reviews are very, very positive. But at the time of its release, <laughs> maybe a little less so. And a lot of people said, hmm, yeah, well, if this had been released when it was supposed to be released, did it have a bigger impact? Yeah. And... I think it probably needed some time to germinate. and People needed time to connect with it a little more fully. But one of the things that infuriated me, and the reason I'm telling this whole story about Smile, one of the things that infuriated me was a story, it was a review that I read, and it might have been on Pitchfork. I, I don't remember the source of it. But it infuriated me because it discounted the album. More or less, it discounted the album because the album is, at its core, whimsical. And this guy was pissed off that the album wasn't more bittersweet. So at the end of it, the guy brought his bag. He was expecting it to be another Pet Sounds. And he, he walked into it with these expectations and gave it a middling review because his expectation really? was that this would be a sadder album than it ended up being. Because, of course, 
whimsy is bad. <laughs> whimsy, whimsy and comedy can't possibly be as artistically right. interesting as tragedy is. Yeah. And that just drives me nuts. Harlan Ellison is a, an author, science fiction author. He's written a lot of short stories and a lot of episodes of things, including Twilight Zone, which we both love. The Twilight Zone, he's written Twilight Zone episodes. And I'm sure he wasn't the first guy to make the announcement. He talked about how, you know, art is a mirror pulled up to society. It forces us to look at ourselves, both individually, our own flaws and weaknesses, and as a society, and really take stock of our flaws as a society. As much as I agree with that, it seems like it revels in the negative yeah. spaces. <laughs> You know, there's a director named Ted Kotcheff. I don't know if you know that name, but he's a Canadian director. And I know you will know him because he has made movies such as The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz okay. and First Blood, oh my. Rambo, First Blood, Beauty. and Weekend at Bernie's. Nice. So he spent a lot of time in the UK after making Apprenticeship and before he came back to North America to make First Blood. And he made an Australian movie that you probably have never heard of. And that's not a dig, I swear. It's just a movie I literally stumbled onto by chance. But it's called Wake and Fright. It's a really, really amazing movie. It's shot entirely in Australia. And it's really about the darkest, darkest aspects of, you know, sort of Australian culture and alcohol culture. It is a harrowing, harrowing movie. And as much as I was blown away by it and as much as I loved it when I saw it, I don't think I've ever watched it a second time for one thing. And I don't think I'd recognize, I'd recommend it <laughs> to a lot of people. It's just that much of um, a downer. It's not that it's a downer in as much as it is an ordeal to go through. Right. Such that the legend of the movie, the story goes, there's sort of a, a popular story about it where during a screening of it for an Australian public, there was a public Australian screening of it. I'm not saying that very well supposedly a member of the audience stood up and started to rant and rave and, you know, made a commotion during the movie saying, that's not us. I know us. And this isn't us. This is an unfair depiction of uh. us. We're not like this. This isn't us. And from somewhere in the theater, he got shouted down. A voice told him, you know, sit down, mate. It's us. I bet he didn't you know call I mean? him like, mate. Well, <laughs> see you next Tuesday. <laughs> but the point is, there are works like that that are horrifying or tragic or whatever. And I think that's important. <laughs> I, I don't disagree with Harlan's take on it. Right. But that's not all art and it shouldn't be all art. And when I put on Genius of Love, I don't care about anything. Yeah. And there's a point, I can't tell you at the moment there's a point when it does kick me in the back of the head and i get that frizzin i get that rush that feeling and that's really all this song means to me is it is pure unadulterated joy when you look at the lyrics the lyrics are fairly simple yeah and not particularly dense the song opens with tina weymouth her character her the narrator i guess talking about how she's in prison and she can't wait to get out of prison because she's going to see the boyfriend yeah. whom she calls the genius of love. And then over the course of the narrative, she talks about how much she loves her boyfriend. And she also talks about how much she loves certain music. And she references George Clinton and Bootsy Collins. She references Bob Marley and Smokey Robinson. 
she re- references Curtis Blow and James Brown, obviously James Brown. Yeah. So there's not tragedy. There's not huge depth. There isn't even a really super interesting backstory about the creation of the song that I want to talk about or the creation of the band. The band is actually a side project for the Talking Heads. You've got, as I said, Tina Weymouth is the bassist of the Talking Heads, and then her husband, Chris France, is the drummer of the Talking Heads. And during the 81, 80, uh, sorry, I think 1980, 81 era, the Talking Heads was on a brief hiatus. And I think if you were to ask David Byrne, they were on hiatus because they were sort of in a creative dry spell. And I think if you ask any of the other members why they were on hiatus, they would all say David Brown (laughs) was the reason they were on hiatus. But that's neither here nor there. It was a side project. The name of the band is based on the club in which they practiced and and rehearsed in the Bahamas. It was quite literally called the Tom Tom Club, Tom Tom being a drum, or Tom being a drum. So there's simply no backstory. This is an episode in which it's all about the way the music makes me feel and the music makes me feel happy. <laughs> the music makes me want to dance and want to move around in my kitchen as I'm preparing a meal or doing whatever. And that is all I can really say about it. As always, thanks for joining us. If you like what you hear, please consider following us. And as always, tell your friends. Until next time, keep listening to that music that means something and always listen with an open mind and communication. <laughs>